Hello, hello. This is the Stiletto Surgeon bringing you an incredible podcast all the way from San Diego, California. I'm here for the American Society of Plastic Surgeons Conference, and it's been totally, totally awesome. So much learning, networking, meeting new friends, seeing old friends. It's been such a great trip. But I have to tell you, yesterday I gave a research presentation and the presenter after me, her name is Dr. Wendy Chen. She's an integrated plastics uh, resident over at Pittsburgh. She gave such an amazing presentation, my mouth dropped, and we even high-fived after her presentation. She's done substantial research on the topic of sexual harassment and bridging the gender gap in plastic surgery. She's really a huge light in our field. We need more and more of her. So naturally, I had to get her on this podcast and just pick her brain and talk to her about how she got here and really, I think, start having discussions so we can change this narrative. Um, so without further delay, because I know Wendy has to catch a flight back to Pittsburgh, uh, let's chat. Hi, Wendy. Hi. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about your story. I mean, wherever you want to start. You can start when you were a kid or whenever. Um, so I'm an integrated resident. Um, I went to UCLA. Uh, I went to the Georgetown Special Master's Program. And then I went to medical school in Cincinnati. Um, culturally, I'd say I was born in the United States, but I actually grew up in Taiwan. Um, and uh, I think as I've progressed in my journey as a trainee and as a plastic surgeon, um, I just naturally became more interested in women in surgery and leadership um, and sort of equity and um, because women are amazing and um, there have been studies to show that women are better doctors or preferred doctors for certain patients so um, I just think that visibility and networking with each other really strengthens us all. Totally agree. Was there any specific mentor in your life that sort of you were like that is a badass female that kind of you wanted to emulate that sort of helped you get here that's interesting because now that we've kind of talked about my childhood there are certain women teachers that I had in grade school high school that were just very confident um, strong women um, but I think particularly in medicine when I first became interested in surgery there was a really uh, amazing accomplished pediatric surgeon at mm -hmm. Cincinnati Children's Hospital um, and then uh, and that kind of got me interested in surgery and felt uh, empowered that I could accomplish it mm -hmm. uh, or pursue it um, and then uh, and then I think just meeting various women in plastic surgery um, and certainly a lot of role models that you just see that maybe you've never interacted with um, has been uh, really inspiring. Yeah. What do you think made them a good mentor for you? Um, so I think mentorship is interesting because different people need different things. Mm -hmm. and, and now there's discussions about when people mentor women, um, things to do differently, such as promoting or sponsorship. That's something that Susan McKinnon talks about. Um, but women may not negotiate for themselves very well or you know, studies have been shown that when children, even as children, until mm -hmm. you feel like you really perfectly know the answer, girls often don't raise their hands. Um, and so um, I think that has been helpful. And then just talking about the experience of women and um, where some of our uh, more senior female attendings have come from mm -hmm. and how far we've come, I think is 
hopeful um, as we progress um, forward in our specialty. Yeah, absolutely. You, you brought up a really good point. So, you know, yesterday I went to, there was a lecture about um, preparing you for your interview after residency. So your first job interview. And I'm not even kidding. Every single person, there was about 15 people there listening uh, to the speaker. They were all women. Mm. And I thought it was so interesting. We all did. Mm -hmm. And in fact, actually, Dr. Dennis Hammond came up oh. and was chatting with one of his residents. And and he was like, is this a, a WPS event? Like, and, and they were, we were like, no, we were yeah. just talking about interviewing and it's all women. And I, you know, I'm like thinking to myself, like, we're all thinking, yeah. why is it all women? Why are yeah. we all here? And I yeah. think that there might just be this weird self doubt. Yeah. That was, you know, I was just kind of thinking about this last night that we kind of carry, um, being women in this field and in such a position where we're not equal. Mm -hmm. So I think we were all looking for that edge that we might be able to, you know, seal the deal at a, mm -hmm. a job interview. And that's the only thing I come up with. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Because I think it was just so bizarre why, yeah. why we were the only. So there's been some literature about how we learn our role in the hospital. So when you go from your preclinical years to your clinical years, um, women look at women in the hospital and men look at men in the hospital when you first join a team and the traditionally you know the men have been the physicians and the residents uh, and the women have not and so from that early stage we learn our gender coding and our roles and we accept certain treatment and roles and um, this culture is inherited um, and then in my research I found that women feel that their gender is a uh, barrier for them. Um, they feel excluded from networking. Uh, their career ambitions are inhibited by uh, their gender. Um, and so I think uh, sometimes people use the word cumulative career disadvantage. And so it's all of that together. So I think um, step one is awareness, both for the woman surgeon, as well as people who are allies and mentors to recognize um, how we've kind of conditioned ourselves to accept certain things and uh, to kind of open your eyes to mm -hmm. those things so that you can sort of modify your behavior and your attitudes um, to try to achieve some equity and, and I guess confidence or self-promotion mm -hmm. um, that is well-deserved. Yeah. Has there ever been a time in your career thus far where you um, personally felt um, the inequality? Have you or, or had a situation where your male counterpart um, was treated differently? I mean, I think um, the culture of men is inherently different from the culture of women. Mm -hmm. And so when you are in certain subspecialties, and the numbers have gotten better in the last seven years um, in terms of the proportion of women uh, trainees in plastic surgery, but um, Women have to either assimilate into the male-flavored culture or um, they, they have to find ways around it to, to become part of it. And sometimes that means giving up the parts of you that are feminine. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, and then in my survey research, I found that 100% of women had been assumed to be a nurse. Um, mm -hmm. I remember when I was the consult resident, I had to wear my white coat all the time and I'd be in and out of the OR reporting to my seniors and they were like, why are you constantly wearing your white coat? Mm. It's such a, you know, just, just, yeah. and, and mm. I was like, if I don't, I won't be treated or recognized as a physician. I, I, I just, I won't. 
Um, and so, um, so, you know, obviously there are so many more stories, but these are just kind of the little things I, I've had a nurse once I went up to the floors after, after being paged a few times, uh, finally made it up there. I had a male medical student with me and she just talked to him for like multiple minutes. And he was like, I, I'm not, I'm not the physician. She's the physician. Yeah. And, uh, even the visual cues of the length of the coats and, um, I'm with the pager, he looks bewildered, you know, like none of these cues really made it through. So, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think we've all felt that. I think it, that it, it's a, it's funny. We laugh it off, you know, at the time, but internally, I think, I mean, it makes you just feel, you know, you're working so hard and you're not acknowledged at all. Mm -hmm. You know, we've all been in that room, you know, you're my doctor or are you old enough to be a doctor? Um, or, my nurse you know, is here. Yeah. Hold on. <laughs> yeah, my nurse is here. Exactly. Or I've gotten like my, you know, the the, the tech. You know, you name it. We've gotten and so, it. You know, it 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 is. It's a it's a it's a blow. Um, I think it's getting better. I mean, I you know, from time to time, we'll come across you know a patient that's like, oh, female surgeon. Like that's great. Mm -hmm. Keep it up, you know, girlfriend. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you do. You just you you do run into those situations where. Like, man, I'm not a man. <laughs> and the imposter yeah. syndrome. Yeah. So um, sometimes when I look back at the clinical years that I've come through and the CV that I've developed, I, when I look at it objectively, I'm like, I, I've done a pretty good job, you know? And, but, um, but still, when I receive a compliment or maybe I win an award, mm -hmm. I, I'm always still surprised and shocked and floored. And <laughs> Because of this imposter syndrome, which is actually a symptom just of, of the underlying culture. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Being not worthy. Yeah. Like, yeah. still surprised. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, and you just, exactly. You see, you know, even at, at our convention, you see just the line of, you know, men in the field on the stage yeah. receiving awards. There wasn't one woman up there. Yeah. So, or yeah. panels. Mm -hmm. and, and you've got to think, like there are women who have the expertise and the knowledge and the mm -hmm. authority to be on this panel, but there aren't any here. Yeah. You know? Um, and, uh, it's, uh, when people are recruiting for new faculty or new positions, the absence of women and, or the visible inequity of women are deterrents to recruitment. Right. So, um, yeah. Right. Why would I want to go somewhere where they're not welcoming and warm? Yeah. And we share a lot of different, uh, uh, we, well, we bring a lot of different issues to the table, right? I mean, we look at things, we're completely, we, we are completely made up of a different substance, mm -hmm. you know? I am more sympathetic and empathetic. I'm a mom, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's different than being a dad. Mm -hmm. And so coming into a boardroom, mm -hmm. how that changes the dynamic. Mm -hmm. And I think from a male perspective, and I, I mean, I can't speak to it, obviously, but I think it's, uh, we just think so different and maybe they're afraid of that. You know? Yeah. I don't know. I, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think change is always a little hard for people. Mm -hmm. Change is hard for everybody. Mm -hmm. It's hard for me. It's <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but uh, I think changes for the better because you get definitely different perspectives. There are papers that I um, was an audience to at this conference that I thought, 
there's a perspective missing here, whether it's scientifically mm-hmm. or sociologically, because there's a lot of sort of more sociologic papers coming out now with patient-reported outcomes or and things like that. And um, there wasn't a female author on there, and I know that the interpretation would have been different or the study design would have been different yeah. if a woman had been involved uh, and mm-hmm. it hadn't just been male minds thinking about it. So, yeah. you know, like in the business realm, people have shown that um, diverse um, working groups uh, are more successful, more profitable. Um, and also the Harvard Business Review has shown that when you have more women in leadership, that's how you really enact culture change and then you have less of this um, harassment and disparity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think you know the, Uni- the United Nations has a he for she initiative. And it's not that um, men can't be victims of sexual misconduct or sexual harassment, but um, you know I think overall, as professionals, we should treat each other professionally. And then as evolving humans and civilization, we should um, be more inclusive. Yeah. And I think also, I think we do it to ourselves a little bit. I find it, a lot of the female mentors I had, I've I've had some insanely just wonderful mentors. But then I've also had, and I wouldn't call them necessarily mentors, but just other females in the field of surgery that were, you know, my senior. And, you know, I've gotten some just, I think, bad advice. And I think that that just perpetuates this inequality. You know, I mean, I, I remember somebody, I mean, this is so, so silly, right? You know, my socks were too loud, Mm -hmm. so I wouldn't be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. You smile too much. You you laugh too too much. much. You laugh too much. You know, um, oh, that's a pink, that's a pink dress you have on today. Like, look at that makeup that you're wearing. Your hair is really fancy. Right. And, and there's always those comments and you don't see us going around talking about your tie you know I mean we could care less (laughs) you know but but I but I think that those little things really um keep us at this distance Mm -hmm. um it adds up it doesn't help certainly Mm -hmm. and I think we as women need to change that um and I don't know if it's by just you know saying to hell with it right Mm -hmm. um you know I'll do what I want Mm -hmm. Um, or, you know, just more discussion, but I, I can just tell you that, you know, those conversations with me didn't help. If anything, Mm -hmm. it just made me more resentful Mm -hmm. of my male counterparts and my female counterparts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, looking back on it now, I mean, even I remember, um, starting my, starting my residency, somebody had told me, you know, don't me and actually my, uh, my best friend in medical school, she's beautiful, beautiful, incredibly intelligent. I mean, just a a pedigree from the beginning and just told us both, like, just be careful. You don't want to wear, um, you know, bright lipsticks. Mm -hmm. What? You're talking to, you know, 25 year old women who are intelligent and, and work hard. And why are we having this discussion? Why don't you tell me what I should be expecting out of residency? That's the conversation we should be having. Not, you know, if you really want people to look at you and take you seriously, don't wear red lipstick because that's not helpful. Yeah. In my opinion, it wasn't at least, you know, it's a, I think it's kind of this gender coding and, and sometimes people want to fly under the radar so that, People can focus on your merits, maybe. Right. Um, but uh, it's like when a girl isn't allowed to wear a spaghetti strap in middle school. It's like it's not her problem. It's mm-hmm. the viewer or the the audience's implicit bias. That mm-hmm. wh- why should it matter? You know. Right. Yeah. Right. As long as it's within the realm of prof- professionalism, why why should mm-hmm. that be a detracting? You know. Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, you spoke in your um, in your research presentation a lot about cha- the pipeline, right? Yeah. The pipeline to um, becoming a, a you know uh, a chairperson in your department or CEO or whatever field you're in, really, because yeah. it's a problem across all careers. Yeah. Um, you know, tell me a little bit more about how you think we can change that pipeline, how we can how we can make it better. Yeah. So, um, you know, in 2017, for the first time, uh, we had slightly more female matriculants to medical school than men, you know, just over 50%. Um, and obviously, more women are choosing surgery. Um, there's a lot of research uh, about how women choose or don't choose surgery that's um, been written now before. Um, but uh, then it starts to decrease when you get to the faculty level, promotion level, that has to do with transparency about uh, equitable pay and pathways to promotion. So um, in terms of when you go from a resident to a faculty, those are some things that people can um, be more fair about. Um, I think I was talking to a recruiter um, of just like big hospital system and at one point I asked him, oh, do you pay men and women the same? And he kind of just burst out laughing and then he realized that I was serious. Um, <laughs> and he was like, yes, we, we pay men and women the same. And, wow. but, but I, I felt a little bold asking that question, but I wanted to know. And, and for him, you know, so I think, um, evaluating your employer and the values and making sure that those are in line with your own. Mm-hmm. Um, that's big, but, uh, how to make it better. So I've talked about implicit bias, people recognizing their own implicit bias. Um, there's, you know, that Harvard website where you can, um, take a little test. Uh, are you implicitly biased against certain races or genders? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in the survey that I'm really excited about that I'm reporting on now, sexual harassment, misconduct, like that's a huge detractant for women. Um, it's, it really is demoralizing um, to receive unwanted touch uh, from medical students, mm-hmm. um, the, the attitudes that you get, um, and then uh, identifying institutional barriers, um, your own personal barriers, like I mentioned, maybe you don't realize that you're being treated a certain way. Um, And then I think what's good for the family is good for everybody, you know, just because, uh, you know, you get into this mindset that you have to suffer as a resident and feel guilty if you have any wellness. Um, But really, and people complain about like maternity leave or family leave, but, um, you know, who's to assume that men don't want to spend time with their newborn or take some time off during that, that time. And, um, I was in a study with, uh, one of my colleagues, Deb Bourne, who's a faculty in Lexington. Now, um, we looked at family planning and the average paternity leave that a male resident gets is like one week. (laughs) Right. You know, actually that brings up, so we had this in my, in my residency in general surgery. Um, you know, I had my son, Dylan, um, such a cute little boy, <laughs> but uh, I had him and I, and I took six weeks, yeah. which was all my vacation time yeah. from, from my, my chief year. Yeah. And then two weeks from my fourth year, yeah. you know, no more vacation, which is tough on you anyways. Yeah. Um, cause having a baby is no vacation, <laughs> yeah. especially those first six weeks. But, um, one of my male counterparts, he was a year behind me, his wife got pregnant and they, you know, had the, had the baby and he had asked to take a month off. 
mm-hmm. for paternity leave yeah. and it wasn't granted yeah. not not only was it not granted by our program which it couldn't it, it just wasn't wasn't allowed by the board yeah. um yeah. it's and so this comes up high yeah. There's and my you know my program director is amazing and, and incredibly supportive. I mean incredibly. When I, I remember so, I, I remember like yesterday telling him I was pregnant, yeah. and just being so scared yeah, at what he yeah, was going to yeah. say and the reaction, yeah. and he was like, "Oh my gosh, this is a blessing." Mm-hmm. So I know that nothing came from him. Yeah. You know this was this is a culture that that's developed higher up, and it's not going to change until there's a female sitting up there mm-hmm. that's been through it. Mm-hmm that that has seen it and and or or an empathetic man you know like my co-resident who poor guy he just wanted to be with his kid family was important to him you know and and so it's just that that's just bad all around and we can talk about pregnancy and residency all day long oh yes but because i mean there's (laughs) just so many so many wrong things but but it's gotta it's gotta change and i think what you're what you're talking about with um uh, just getting somebody up there is is the start. So it's funny. One of my friends was saying that I think in certain states you're not allowed to remove a puppy from the mother until eight weeks or something. But in wow. humans, you know, <laughs> that's unbelievable. I, I I believe it because those PETA yeah. is strong. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, you know, I think OBGYN has um, the best family leave pro- policy for their residents in terms of finishing residency, which is not a surprise. Mm. Uh, I feel like plastic surgeons are very clever problem-solving people and Mm -hmm. there's a way to make this better um, for trainees because I don't think that by choosing this life and this career that means you give up your personal life especially for women Mm -hmm. I mean for a man you have a little bit more leeway in your reproductive life Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't mean you don't want to be a younger father you know and and for women there's a literal clock yeah Um, and um, uh, Dr. Bourne and I, the study that we did, we looked at um, how many percentage of trainees require help from reproductive endocrinology, and it's like 30 to 40 percent, which is on par with urology yeah. and other um, challenging subspecialties. So it's very high, and I think um, I encourage people to talk to each other about it because chances are there's definitely people in your social circle that are pursuing that. Um, and it's not a shame or it's not, some people find it personal, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very open to talking about like how I went and froze my eggs and stuff. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more yeah. about that because, <laughs> well, no, because I, I, you know, I do have other friends that have problems with fertility yeah. because they waited long or what, or even in other careers where they're career women. And I think it's, you know, it's sort of a, you're right. A kind of a taboo subject we don't yeah. talk about. Yeah. Um, and the fact that you've done it, I mean, I'd love to hear a little bit about that experience for you. So, um, this summer, so 2019, the resident magazine, um, I had written about my experience. So, um, uh, we, so one of my attendings had kind of got all the women together, um, residents and fellows to kind of just have brunch together. And, um, somebody, I don't know what we were talking about. And she just, um, was willing to tell us the story of how, she had gone through general surgery and they had tried to have uh, a baby and they'd been working on it for like seven years or something. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I didn't know what that meant, meaning each cycle that you go through, it's your activities are prohibited, um, you don't feel your best, um, there's disappointment involved. Um, it's a really, it's a battle for your body and your time. You have to go get blood tests and, and image, you know, ultrasounds mm-hmm. and all these things and injecting yourself 
Um, but uh, she told the story and I just thought, you know, like I call consults every day. Like I just put in an order, put in a consult. Why not? Mm -hmm. I'll just like, I'll just go. I'll just get informed or there's no downside. Mm -hmm. And so I went and um, the first thing my doctor said to me was, I'm so glad you're here. Like I was a 33 year old surgical resident and, um, and that was very validating. Um, and so we just kind of talked about it. Um, and she was like, well, why don't you just assess your fertility? She was like, I feel like women should get this done every year. You know, it should be part of your primary care. And, you know, so all that was, was like a blood test and ultrasound. It was maybe three or $400. And I thought to myself, um, okay, if I have terrible fertility, then I'll just, I'll certainly do it now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it ended up that, uh, I had good fertility. Um, and so she was like, well, then you should definitely do it because it'll cost you the least. You'll need the fewest medications to, you know, achieve a certain goal. Um, and, uh, you're never going to be younger than today. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to kind of meet with a financial planner. It seemed feasible for me. Uh, and I put it in the terms of like, how much is it worth to me when I'm, let's say, 37, 40 years old, I would like to have a biological child. How much is that regret cost worth to me? If I paid $20,000, I could be pregnant with my own biological child. Would that be worth it to me? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, 2000, 5000, whatever it is. Right. Um, and I thought, yes. And, you know, if I can't get pregnant biologically, I can accept that as well. But to have that backup plan that I have kind of do this, done this due diligence it was worth something to me. Um, there have been women and couples that I've talked to um, because this is a thing for couples too. Maybe you don't want to do it in training, but you can freeze an embryo, and yeah. that's very that's you know that's very good. Um, and uh, so so I went forward with it, and I just felt like um, some peace or some, some like I, adulting. I've done it. Right. Uh, I, I did it, and I'm considering a second round. Um, but, um, but I just, I, I felt glad that I'd done it and I am very, very open talking about it. And, um, it's been really nice, the conversations I've had with women and couples and trainees and, um, just to get the conversation started. Some people that I've talked to were like, I, I'm okay. Like if I get to that point and I have to adopt or whatever, mm-hmm. um, surrogate or whatever it is, um, I'm okay with it. Some people have said, um, you know, who believe in God. Um, they feel like whatever's right for me is mm-hmm. going to be right for me. And, and that's great too. But mm-hmm. at least you've thought about it right. and you've considered it and things always change, you know, and, and maybe you plant that seed, um, and, you know, anything can happen. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that it's excellent. Um, at least to even think about it Yeah. because a lot of women, a lot of women in surgery, they just put it off because it, there's so much going on. I mean, I remember even when I got pregnant with Dylan, um, you know, just thinking, how am I gonna, I was going on plastic surgery <laughs> interviews. Yeah. I mean, yeah. just trying to go about life. And then once you have a baby, how do you handle that yeah. in training? Yeah. And it is a lot to think about. Yeah. Um, so I can understand the flip side, you know, for me, it didn't matter. I was going to do it and I had the support and yeah. no questions asked, yeah. but I get the flip side. You know, I'm not ready to do this right now. I'm focused on my career. Yeah. I'm or my, my, my significant other or non-partner hasn't shown up yet, yeah. you know? And so I really think it's a great idea. For um, me, it really yeah. wasn't that much money, to be honest. Mm-hmm. In, in Pittsburgh, it's less than a dollar today to keep them in the, in the fridge. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the first year was included in the first harvest. Oh. And then um, I, I don't know if this is available to mm-hmm. everybody, but through my network of chatting with uh, women, like, 
you always have leftover medications after a round. Mm -hmm. I had leftovers. I just give it to somebody like mm -hmm. that. We were friends and we trust each other. And so, and people have shared their medications with me. So that really helped with cost. And then, and so people think cost is a burden. I, I don't think it's, mm -hmm. um, so much of a burden depending on where you are and you can change your insurance or, mm -hmm. um, our women's hospital had like a little bit of a subsidy of some kind that mm -hmm. I still don't really understand that <laughs> I benefited from. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't think that there's ever a good time. I'm not a mom now, but I feel there, there's never really a good time. Yeah. Um, but my program was supportive in the sense that I told people my call pool because mm -hmm. it's sedation mm -hmm. one day. So I was like, if I can't take call that one day, I'll get you the next day. Mm -hmm. And um, I would go, uh, there were 6 a.m. appointments, so mm -hmm. I could round and go to pre-op and do my appointment before 7.30. Look at you, um, all fitting in the day, and just, <laughs> just put your eggs in the freezer yeah. on the same day. Just a little round, a little eggs, I mean, you know. So you can, you yeah. can make it work. I mean, yeah. I just, I think me being willing to talk mm -hmm. about it and be honest, and people are just like, oh yeah, okay, I mean, that seems important. Go. Mm -hmm. You know? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So people were willing to help. Like, people are willing mm -hmm. to help. Mm -hmm. I think as surgeons, we like, oh, don't ask for help, you know, yeah. but like, ask for help. People yeah. want to help. Right. Yeah. Right. I had a, so when I, I had this conversation with somebody and then she talked with her parents, her parents were like, no matter what it costs, you want to do it? We'll pay for it. <laughs> like they were, so, you know. Maybe grandparents one day. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they're, they got skin in the game, you know? Yeah, as a hundred percent. I'm sure my parents would have been the same way. Exactly. I mean, they. Just to even have a baby, they're like, when, when, when's your next yeah, one? When's your next we're, one? We're there for. <laughs> yeah, come on, come on. Um, okay, all right. So I'm going to shift the subject a little bit yeah. because I know that you're also uh, really kind of um, passionate and, and, and uh, an expert in the research field of kind of sexual misconduct mm -hmm. um, in residency and beyond. Um, kind of tell me a little bit about your your research and you know. Everything we should know about this subject. So I hashtag me too. <laughs> I, I won't. I don't want to say that I'm an expert because, um, except for me, that I'm a woman. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I think um, the things that I looked into, mm -hmm. zero women surgeons that I've talked to are surprised. Mm -hmm. um, I think I'm very interested in the subject, and I would love to become an expert. But that I think is mm -hmm. an evolving process for me. Mm -hmm. So um, people have been somewhat interested in this, I think, over the years. Um, sexual harassment and assault are improving in the field of medicine. JAMA has publications like every 10 or 20 years about this, but it's about global medicine in general. Um, and I think that we um, are better than the way that we sometimes behave uh, in the operating room or, or at work. And it's not to say that we can't be fun, you know, we can't have fun or have, you know, stress relieving conversation and interactions with each other, but I think we can be mindful, you know? So, um, I think 20, 30 years ago, there was a study, uh, that Susan McKinnon was involved with that said that only 20% of sexual misconduct, uh, incidents are reported and trainees are a very vulnerable population. Um, people have published articles about how getting fellowships and jobs is not necessarily always so much your CV, but heavily relied on networking as well and the people that you know and what people say about you. And I think experientially, that's very true, um, how people get jobs. Like, we know this intuitively. Um, and so uh, in the last year, I wanted to create like a baseline report numbers. What is sexual harassment and misconduct like in plastic surgery for trainees? And so um, I surveyed uh, all the trainees that were in training 
uh, in 2018, and I based this survey on uh, sexual harassment inventory from uh, the VA as well as wellness studies um, that have been administered to residents in general in the past. And um, I had, a, I think, a representative demographic in terms of distribution of residents, interns, fellows. Um, the races are very uh, representative of what plastic surgery is, mainly Caucasians, and the next is Asians. I had a response rate of about 20%. And um, so if we just, let's see, talking about harassment in general. So um, people, women feel less comfortable challenging attitudes regarding gender equality. They feel excluded from networking. Um, they feel it has a diminishing effect on their career goals and ambitions. Um, women experience sexual harassment in the form of jokes, comments about their body or sexuality. Let's talk about this for a yeah. second because yeah. I think this is where I felt it the most. I yeah. mean, luckily I haven't had like a, you know, slap on the rear, yeah. you know, or anything you know, to that extreme. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people that have, unfortunately, mm -hmm. but, um, the jokes yeah. and the, um, uh, like we were talking about just, just ridiculous, you know, you're, well, that's a, that's an interesting skirt, you know, today, but the, the jokes in the OR and I, and if there is a man listening, that is a surgeon <laughs> or even a, an, a, in a position of any power over a young female, I just want to encourage you, please just be mindful of what you say. Because, I mean, even even certain things like talking about, you know, a, a woman's breast jiggling down the hallway, mm -hmm. you know. And, and I, you know, we think it's funny. As women, we joke around and sometimes we, you know, aren't the nicest to other women. And, yes. and, and you know, and I'm mindful of that. I mean, I don't think it's you know, completely one-sided. But I think that when you're a young female and a young female surgeon in the OR with an adult male, you know, and you're you're listening to them and they're, for whatever, you know, they're teaching you, right? You're, this is somebody you're looking at for advice and, you know, how do I make it out of this operation with this patient alive? That's very important. Yeah. And then you bring up these jokes that are demoralizing to women in some way. Um I think that to me was probably the most hurtful mm -hmm. uh, because it's 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 small and it's repetitive and mm -hmm. it's over years. Microaggressions. It's yes, and it and I think it takes a toll on you as a female, and 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 then that's what I saw more often than not. And I'm not saying you can't be jokey and funny, yeah. and we can't talk about things that are politically incorrect. Yeah. And but uh, I do. I think you just need to watch it. So I think um, so. Uh, people have written about how the older an attending becomes, especially the male attending, the less people are to correct you, mm -hmm. let's say, about something in the operating room that's clinical, or about your behavior and conduct in general. And when you are the leader of an operating room, um, maybe you're the most senior resident in the room and the attending has left the room, or you're the attending in the room, you are commanding um, the, you're dictating the culture right. and the tone of the room for an anesthetist, um, a circulator, a scrub tech, a senior resident, a junior resident, a medical student. And most likely nobody is going to challenge you regarding anything, mm -hmm. like what you're talking about professionally or personally, um, or people, you know, try to do it in ways that th there's fear, mm -hmm. you know, it's a hierarchy. It's a very cemented hierarchy the way that we come up in surgery and um, so you should recognize the power that you have in that position so um, 
I've I've told male residents before, like, look, you may think that you're just a stupid boy, like, oh, I'm not better than this. This is just who I am. But the reality is that people are looking to you. Mm -hmm. The more senior you become around the hospital, um, in the operating room, you are setting an example. You cannot help because this is what you've chosen. You are a role model. You're dictating culture. And so whether you are commanding a conversation or what what you're allowing and permitting to be said or behaviors or, or things like you have great influence and you should be mindful of that and not be, um, you, you should be mindful of that. You know, mm -hmm. it's not uh, flippant or, or unimportant. Mm -hmm. um, you're the one who's leading the culture. Right. Yeah. And I think you're right. And what you say has consequence. Yeah. And it might not be that day and you might not ever know if what you're saying, and this goes for all of us, is hurting somebody else, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, just over time. Yeah. It can affect, I think it makes an effect. Yeah. And it just widens the gap, really, yeah. at the end of the day. And, you know, I think, and on that subject, I think a lot of women don't choose to do academics because they've just had these you know what, now we've been in training for what, 15 years, 10 mm -hmm. years. And, you know, that amount of time with those small little, um, you know, just like mind torture yeah. is really, so um, <laughs> at the end of it, is you just want to leave. You want to get out of academics, Yeah, you know? So um, there was a study out of general surgery that surveyed some women and um, women were six times more likely to intend on leaving academics within yeah. the next two years. When people say, oh, you know, it's just a matter of time and women are going to catch up. That's a view that's held by women and not by uh, mm -hmm. held by men and not by women. Right. Um, we don't know about attrition. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, I don't know about attrition for men either. So it would be uh, an interesting study to compare. Um, but uh, women, you know, there's a study about how everything being exactly the same, NIH grants, most likely given to men and not to women. Um, it's slower to progress. You're not put up for leadership positions as much unless you have a very intentional um, mentor or uh, chairman, maybe. Yeah. Um, so it is very demoralizing. And um, um, yeah. We don't want to hear it. So yeah. we leave yeah. because we don't have time for that. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and you know, with all of yeah. this, like women can be perpetrators against mm -hmm. women. And right. it's not, it's not, it's not like, separated by gender. You right, know? right. Um, We're sometimes our own worst enemy. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. It's a complicated yeah. psychology of women competing with women. And, and so, um, yeah, it's, it's uh, but I think, you know, when we talk about toxic masculinity or really male-dominated culture, I don't think that's good for men or women mm -hmm. um, to hold on to these very stolid and rigid uh, sort of gender role ideals. Mm -hmm. Um I think both genders and everybody in between benefit from um, more equality and and uh, just I don't know caring about each other and right. not debasing ourselves with some of the things that we choose to talk about. Yeah, I think we all have to hold each other up. I mean, it's such a small field. It's such an amazing field to be able to you know touch a patient and 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 be vulnerable. That we have to remember what we're in it for. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I want you to do just as well, you know, because that just makes us all better. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think we should wrap it up. And I, and I think, you know, what I want to ask you is if you could give advice to, let's just say, let's just say college you, 
college, we'll start with college because then I'll ask you, you know, what, what would you do for a, a surgical resident? But college you, college female, what would be your biggest advice going forward and somebody that wanted to go into medicine? We'll just mm. say medicine. Um, you know, I've sometimes thought about this. Um, and I had a mentor who once said to me, like, you know, I, I think you would be great as a surgeon, but I don't know if surgery would be very kind to you. Mm. Um, college me, I probably would have gone to Burning Man and like, <laughs> 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 um, um, this is, this is, a, it's, there's so many things that have changed. I don't know. I think, um. I've always been into social justice, so I think, I don't know if my path would have changed so much. I grew up in a very Confucian culture where you really revere teachers, mm -hmm. um, which oftentimes are men, and obviously, historically, teachers and scholars have been men. So um, I was very entrained in this gender role and this sort of culture, and I often didn't question things. Um, so I think for young women now, um, being aware of your implicit bias against yourself um, and um, surrounding yourself and paying attention to um, strong and independent and um, kind women that are interested in lifting other people up. Um, just being aware and sensitive to um, your perceptions about yourself and um, mm -hmm. coming up with a vision for yourself that's independent of what expectations may be or what barriers may be. And um, I don't know, trying to trying to yeah. surround yourself with the right people to help you reach that goal. Yeah, no, that's that's excellent. <laughs> I mean, be know thyself yeah. and, and just do it, you know, yeah. and question everything. I think that that's, that's, that's what I would say to my college self too, yeah. is just, you know, you can do this. Don't worry about what other, everybody else thinks. Yeah. And, you know pick everybody's brain along the way yeah <laughs> all right well i think we got to get you to your flight this was so wonderful this is so great yeah all right thank you so much thank Wendy. you thank you so much wendy for being here today it was such a great conversation about some very difficult subject matter i want to encourage everybody to please listen to our next podcast where we'll delve into these subjects a little bit more also you can follow me on instagram at the stiletto surgeon or follow my blog at porousplasticsurgery.com. You can also email me comments or suggestions to sp at porousplasticsurgery.com. I look forward uh, to hearing what y'all have to say in the future. All right, thanks.